All right. Good evening, everyone. John Henry Soto here along with George Batista. Welcome to Counterparts. I am super excited. I don't know about you, George, but I am super excited. Absolutely. Me too. This is going to be an epic night. Um, Yes. Mauricio Bustamante is going to be on the show this evening. And uh, we're going to, you know, I'm just going to bring him on because, you know, George, you and I can chat and we don't want to chat. We want to chat to Mauricio, so let's bring him on. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Mauricio Bustamante. Oop, hold on, one thing. Yay! There he is. Good evening. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Very kind of you. Yeah, it's our our pleasure. Thank you so much for being on. We're uh, extremely uh, excited to have you on because... Me too. Yeah. (laughs) Your history is, is, is amazing. You have some great stories that we want to hear. Um, we also want to have some input for some younger or not younger necessarily, just anyone that wants to need, need some motivation in this crazy industry that we all love. Um, and I think that that's really one of the uh, the joys of having you on. Thank you. Thank you. No, it sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. And we have a lot we have a lot of wonderful reasons to motivate artists uh, that, that want to really uh, dedicate their life to. And what Lee Strasberg used to say is, you don't need passports between the arts. Once you're an artist, that's an artist. And, you know, that kind of commitment, that kind of uh, commitment, really, is what it takes. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. So I want to start off um, by asking you about how, you know, Mexico City, how did that trip to New York City, uh, how did that come about? Well, it was a wild adventure that started on my 13th birthday in Mexico City when we were at a restaurant celebrating my birthday, my mom, my brother and I, and it's a normal family restaurant, but the most famous human in television walked in the door and there were no tables available. So I went over there and I said, do you want to sit down with us? And he did. Uh, he gave me all kinds of advice about the industry, how some days you have no money, some days you have so much money, you don't know what to do with it, right. and so on and so forth. But he was in a television, weekly television show at the time, and everything was live in those days. Right. And so we were invited to go, and we went on Thursday evening at 8 p.m. was the show, and after which we had uh, some uh, lunch or whatever, dinner, you know, after the show with a bunch of superstars. And I just never stopped going. And he told everyone at the studio that I, we were their, his nephews, so they would treat us well. Uh. Well, within three weeks, I was already on in a television show. Wow. Uh, and I was playing little er, little roles. I wasn't like starring in anything, yeah, but yeah. I was beginning to make my way. And I was working with the most famous people in the world for right. as far as we knew. But a year later to the date, we moved to the United States. So I figured, well, there goes everything. Mm. And then we lived in Los Angeles for a year and a half. And the excitement of being in the United States and being in a completely different environment was uh, all I needed at the time. But then junior, we went to Denver. We moved to Denver. And we, the, high, the school shows began. Junior high school, high school, and college. Right down the street in Denver, Colorado, on the same street was our house our high school, the college. Now, the college was a women's college. So the mother superior came over to our high school to recruit actors for the, oh, for the college. Wow. So I was doing the shows at my high school and the shows at the college. Nice. Now, six months into my, once I graduated from high school and started going to school there, which was a um, scholarship, 
then six months later, I got my first professional job with uh, Bill McHale, who was the only professional producer in Denver at the time. He had a musical review. He mm. said, well, you can't sing, but you can sell it. You're hired. And, uh, <laughs> and from then on, he built shows around me for the next 10 years. Wow. But, um, the mother superior, I went in and I said, uh, ma'am, uh, I got hired by Mr. McHale and uh, I'm going to go on the road with him. She said, oh, I'm so glad. The door here will always be open, but go on uh, and work with Mr. McHale because you're a terrible student. <laughs> <laughs> you only hope. <laughs> so he got, took me on the road and, and that's when I came to Nashville on the road. And we were doing the show called The Highlights of Broadway by Bill Ma of Bill McHale's Highlights of Broadway. Mm -hmm. And this magnificent lady came backstage and she said, I'm casting this film. And she told me all these famous names that I have no idea who she was talking about. But I said, well, I'm in this show and I can't, I gotta be in the show until June something. Well, can you come the next day to start shooting? Because Tay Garnett wants you in the, in the movie. And he was the original director of The Postman Always Rings Twice. He was oh, yeah. a wonderful director. Yeah. So I wrote to him and I said, my, my father is visiting me here in Shreveport, Louisiana, where we're doing the show. And he said, you bring your father. I'm sending two airline tickets. And I'm going to put him in the movie with you. He'll be an extra because I was the waiter in the scene. It was all my scene with Yvette Bimu, Christopher George, uh, Yvonne DiCarlo. But they said, your father will be an extra in the movie. And he'll earn a couple of hundred dollars and he'll be with you and you'll travel together. Yay! So <laughs> now, awesome. after that, we went to Oklahoma to see my younger brother who was in the army at the time. And then I drove him to Dallas so he would go visit family. And I never saw my father again because mm. he died while uh, uh, right after that, I went in the army. The U.S. Okay. Army had already drafted me by the time this movie was being made. and uh, But the producer spoke to the a colonel in, in charge and he said if you take this kid you're going to put a couple of hundred people out of work so oh. the colonel said okay when does he finish blah blah date okay that's when he starts his military training then wow so i came out of the military um and i got the honorable discharge and i came to new york to visit a friend of mine for 10 days and he said what are you going to do in denver there's nothing for you in denver he said, stay here. You can collect unemployment. I go, what the hell is unemployment? <laughs> blah, blah. So, oh, okay. So, the, but soon after that, Bill McHale again. He cast me in Tea House of the August Moon. And off I was on the road again. And so here I was doing these wonderful shows, which were meant to entertain. And my purpose was at the time to entertain the audience. And that's what the directorial suggestions had to do with. That's what my choices had to do with. And so I was having a very fine time and having a lot of fun. Even the New York Times critic one time said he has a lot of fun on stage and gives us one too. So <laughs> I didn't know anything about acting technique. Mm -hmm. And these wonderful actors, I was doing Charlie Zank, playing the lead Lord Fankard Baberly in Charlie Zank. And this wonderful actor and actress, husband and wife said, have you ever been in a good acting school? I said, what is that? And so, <laughs> so I started to think acting classes and, and I really, really, no matter what, what I really wanted to learn was the craft of acting. 
So this magnificent friend takes me to Lee Strasberg's class in 1973 as a guest. My gosh. I'll tell you, I have the same thing in common with Jeffrey Horn, a magnificent actor from the films and the theater. And he said the same thing happened to him. In five seconds, we knew we wanted to learn what Lee Strasberg was talking about. So I went off on the road again. I did Oklahoma for about six months. I did another production of Tijas of the August Moon. And then I came to uh, the Institute in Los Angeles first. In 75, I finally started studying full time. Hmm. I thought I was going to go for three months. Then I learned little by little that it was going to take between seven and 10 years to learn the technique correctly. Wow. So after nine months at the Strasbourg Institute in Los Angeles, then I um, went back on the road again. I did a wonderful production of Oklahoma with George Lee Andrews and Marty Morris, beautiful Broadway uh, performers. And we uh, we toured, and then I went to the Institute in New York. And that's where mm-hmm. I stayed until um, to, uh, a couple of years ago. I finally, you know, needed to... I had been teaching for 25 years. Wow. I had been in the Institute for 45, studying and performing and teaching. Yeah. So I figured I really needed to have a little freedom to mm-hmm. um, run off and pursue my work as an actor and everything. Mm-hmm. But Lee Strasberg instantly changed the actor's life because the first thing that I learned was what I was explaining a little bit ago that I was into entertaining the audience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And with Lee, we learned how to enchant ourselves with our choices so that we could behave truthfully in the imaginary circumstances. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to create a relationship with my brother or my son or someone in the play And I'm going to make that relationship real to me somehow, even if I personalize it. For instance, I'm with John in the scene and you're my son and I want to save your life. Well, I may have a lot of love for you as an actor and a lot of regard and everything. But if you were my brother, then I would go for I I would give my life for you. Hmm. No question about it in my mind. So now I have an option to turn my relationship with you into the relationship with my brother. And I go, now I understand that I have got to save your life. Right. Wow. So all of this wonderful technique for the actor began and no one understood the actor's instrument like Lee Strasberg. Right. I, I wanted to ask you about him because what was exactly his his approach? That's exactly the question I was going to ask. Actually. His approach that made it, that made you just within just a couple of... Uh, you know, minutes know that this is the guy that was because he he has his, I mean, you know, the Al Pacino's and the De Niro's and all the guys that were. And that was the least of my, the, uh, uh, trust me, that, uh, that was the least of it. But let me, right. When you first met him, you were like with an Einstein. Mm. So that just instantly, I'd never seen anything like that in the theater. I thought maybe in science or something. But what he understood was that it was possible to train the actor's instrument. For instance, the the principal tool of the Strasberg technique is the physical relaxation of the muscles. It's a relaxation that is done on a chair, on a like a folding chair, not a comfortable chair, but a, like a folding chair. 
And it's like a meditative uh, uh, kind of different from meditation because meditation tries to tranquilize the mind while this you don't allow the brain to get calm but it is um, a very meticulous exploration of the physical instrument with some movement to understand if there is tension that needs to be let go so you're trying to you're training the muscles to relax just because they're being told to so what what lee was explaining was small muscles like fingers, the facial muscles, the neck and the, the shoulders, because everything bottlenecks on the way up to the brain. So little tiny details of what are the difficulties with relaxing the muscles so that they can execute choices in front of the camera or in front of the audience. Right. And so this wonderful relaxation exploration takes you through a meticulous attention you give attention to every area of the face the neck the upper torso the lower torso all the way through the limb whether it's the leg or the arm and you and you move and drop the arms you move the leg and drop the leg and you are helping the muscles to understand that they're only using just enough energy as is absolutely necessary hmm. and then you know that with those relaxed muscles, you then include the intensity needed for the scene because your character is never relaxed. So it, right. it can't afford to be literal tension, but intensity that you have control over, that's what belongs in the scene. So first things first, the muscles relaxing, one of the things that does, it enables the inner life to come to the surface. So the emotional life of the actor is visible to the camera, which is what we love to see. Right, because right. what we're talking about is behaving privately in public and not acting. Right. Absolutely. Right. That's, that is like, um, <laughs> that's unbelievable. The, the challenge I would think as a, as any, you know, anyone that that's begins that process or that journey, the challenge is to learn the technique. And this is why it takes so long to learn the technique so well that when you're performing, you're not aware that you're doing. It's so part of who you are. You're, it's innate in you that then you can actually do the actual work yes, without now, being remember, aware. We always, we always know we are dealing with a dual reality. Right. I mean, I know exactly what's happening out front with the audience. Sure. And I know exactly where the camera, the cinematographer is my date, right. my dance right. partner. Right, right. So I'm perfectly aware of the literal reality, but much more importantly, I'm focusing on the imaginary reality. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. amazing. That's it's amazing. wonderful. Now, what is it like? So I hear the stories of actors who, and John and I have talked about it in the past, those actors who stay in character even when they're not performing versus those actors that can just turn it on and turn it off. Is that something that, you, that you've that uh, you worked on or, or teach? Yes, yes because, because, for instance, the first exercise in Strasberg technique is the breakfast drink. So I'm going to, it's a sense memory exercises. Now I'm, now I'm going to deal with sense memory. Um, I'm 
try to remember the texture of the cup, the temperature of the cup. See, my senses are trying to explore a memory at will. So I'm focusing on this breakfast drink and the smell of it and the taste of it, et cetera, et cetera. Not pantomiming, trying to remember the sensory reality of the object. And then I finish the exercise and I come right back to the literal reality. I know the walls, I know the floor, I know the windows, I know whatever, the literal reality, right back to it. So every, so from the very beginning, I was trained to come right back to the literal reality and that when I'm taking my curtain call, it is Mauricio, not the right, character anymore. Right. On my mm. way to the trailer from the set, it is me, not my character. So because we do horrendous things in performance. I have been raping and killing people my whole life. <laughs> the young woman is going to have to kill her children nearly at the end of the play in Medea and then go home and have dinner. Oh. <laughs> so you're talking about you're talking about a professional uh, exigency, a professional demand for the actor to be yeah. healthy. Right. Right. Because if you are now there are no laws about this. You can work however the hell you want. If your performance is good, who gives a flying anything? Right. So uh, the heck with that. But I want to not have to carry that horror on my shoulders. Uh, the, uh, uh, by the time the curtain opened in the lesson, which I was doing a couple of years ago, I already murdered 40 of my students that morning. <laughs> now, me and, and Stanislavski are asking me to try to make that real to myself. Well, uh, fortunately, there is plenty of horror in my own life. Right. I can right. go there right. and go, nah! But right. I, this is what the audience needs to see. A person in despair trying not to murder one more kid, one more right. student, and you end up murdering her anyway. <laughs> no, I'm not going to reveal any of my, I'm not going to reveal any of my personal problems on here, mm. but then I go to some horrendous nightmare of my own Unfortunately, I've never killed anybody yet, but, you know, other <laughs> horrors have happened and I can go there. What I did learn is if I know that it's going to hurt me, if it's going to ruin the joy of going to the theater every night, I don't work with that choice. Ah, but I'm mm. going to play hardball. Right. Yeah. So you see how important it becomes to be able to just make the transition back into the literal reality. And, and very solid training helps the actor to understand that. But there are people with enormous talent, but they haven't been formally trained in it, and they're using it as they will, which of right. course is their right. Sure. Right. sure. Awesome. Yeah, so that, that's, that's incredible. Um, another thing that, I, that I've heard you talk about is um and i and i'm i'm assuming it's part of also the training the muscle training is singing how how important yes. is the singing aspect in this i can't imagine an actor not singing every day wow there's a bike in the other room in which the breathing exercises start mm. you know you're biking and you're inhaling for four beats you're holding the breath for four beats and then you're exhaling and letting it exhale and exhale and exhale and exhale and exhale until you run out of breath. Back again in four beats, hold four beats. This is training from the vocal teacher. Now, the next step after that, which the opera singer from the Metropolitan explained, the first sound I make in the morning 
es that's placing the voice correctly and while i'm still on the bike then it starts the shakespeare thus far with rough and all it's a speech which mm. i sing for the purposes of giving the voice musicality right because right. the audience is educated absolutely they, they know the difference between monotone and something with musicality in it the audience right. is not a dummy yeah, so sure. the vocal instrument has got to be trained every day because then I neither have to worry about it when I'm on a big stage, nor do I have to worry that when I'm not projecting, which I don't need to do in film, I still have expression and musicality in the voice. Right. So right. Lee did not place enormous focus on this, mm -hmm. but it's something that to me i figured how are you gonna get on the stage without the instrument getting wonderful attention right now right who cares if you're a good singer unless you're going to be a good a singer but if right. you're going to be an actor what you need is singing and and, and uh, heightened speech so that the the articulators are getting a workout like Excellent. all the, like all the rest of the body is getting Right, oh, right. The exercises that you that you'd have to do to learn, because Shakespeare it's, it is a lot of uh, wordplay. There's a lot of a lot of textures in the in the. There's a lot of inflections that you have to kind of like get in there, and every actor you know would do it maybe slightly different, but overall the sensibility of that character is the same. Yes, they're it going is. through the same exact thing. Yes. Um, now, depending on the director, the the production may be much more strict, as in the iambic pentameter in Shakespeare. Baram, 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 baram. So the director may be very strict and want the iambic pentameter and give a lot of attention to that. Right. Another director may say, "Don't worry about it. You can't screw this up," which is what Lee used to say. So, but but what you must be able to do is give your brain and your articulators enough time familiarizing themselves with this heightened language so that you can also include the reality that you're trying to create. Right. I'm playing the nurse in Romeo and Juliet, for instance. Well, I know when I'm trying to be dirty and naughty. I know when I'm trying to hide that I'm a dirty, naughty maid. I know when I love the little girl. I know when I, all of those things also, it can't just be language. Mm -hmm. So it's something that I realize, even as I rehearse uh, scenes today, that how it facilitates my communicating something that is contemporary, but a little bit complicated, perhaps. And the, the, because, look, we're speaking a lot of the time lines written by poets. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Whether it's Tennessee Williams, whether it's whoever the author is, you're dealing with wonderful language and just what you are saying, you have to have a capacity to love it right. and play with it and use it yeah. to get what you want from the other characters in the scene. Yeah. I heard you say, uh, you did a, a little snippet, I think it was on Instagram, where you said the, the, if there was one thing that you learned from Lee Strasberg, like that most important thing, and it was, you know, you talked about the performance really being for you first, then for the audience. 
Um, and that's in theater, uh, in film as well, which is yes. a little bit more, it's a little different in, in film because you have, you have to start your, like, how do you do that? Like when you're on a film set, the, the, the audience is not really there. You know, you do have an audience, the crew, but they're busy working, right? They're not even looking at your that, performance not, that's sometimes. That's not an audience, absolutely. Right, that's not an audience. So you would, you have to kind of think that it's got to go through that lens and you have to communicate that same thing that you were communicating through the theater, through that little lens, and it's got to project, but not project vo vocally. It's got to project with the inflection well, and all that. In my early experience, within about three months of my being at Strasbourg, I started taking classes at, at the Institute with Shelley Winters. <clears throat> and she was explaining just what you're talking about. And she said, in the, first of all, Lee always said, the difference between theater and film is child's play, because what then the way that Shelley explained it and on the stage you speak loudly and think softly in film you think loudly and speak softly right oh, so okay that's true it's a magnificent technical challenge no right. director has ever not had to bring me down whether it's theater or film <laughs> i always said and then the director whoa 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 let's get up you know, now with film the thing that's missing is that other element that has to hear and see the thing because the element that's hearing and seeing is so intimately here with you that's the cinematographer the camera right that's that's the beautiful something that is the love of your life yeah. the most enchanting thing that that is what you live for yeah and you know that you speak things the way you would if you were in truthful circumstances. You don't have to worry about the projection right. of any of that. Right. But you are completely clear about your intentions. You're completely clear about what you, how you interpret what is happening to you in the scene now. Right. And yes, of course, you're able to. Sometimes we scream and hoot and holler in real life, too. Not because we need to project, because we're we're not going to scream uh, at each other. We have to scream. Right. <laughs> because we scream loud. When we scream, right. we scream. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, the neighbors, so, now we're having a fight. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the, the challenge, um, is it difficult, though, for um, to to go and actually, because there, there's a freedom when you're in the theater. There's this, There's a a freedom where when you're on a film set there's a there's a little restriction there's a there's the blocking can be very limited the theater too in, in the theater, theater too yeah but you have the stage, right same thing eight times a week and try not to become mechanical right right, right that's but true in yeah. the theater i put my glasses on at the same time i i do the exact same thing with the glasses i take the pen and i throw it with the same i do everything i and i and my intentions in the theater are the same. In other words, you are expecting me to become a little hostile during this beat in the scene. And that hostility is something you're expecting in the scene as an actor because you have scored a response to my hostility. So the whole production is expecting my hostility, whether right. it's film or whether it's theater, the, the other people are expecting that. I don't have the freedom to, oh, this evening I'm going to try it funny. No, there is a union representative in the theater 
And if you mm -hmm. are not doing what you're meant to do, what, what was set, then the, the stage manager will say, Mr. Bustamante, we need to get back to, the, to, what, <laughs> to what was uh, right. staged by the director. If that's not possible on Thursday, which is rehearsal day, we will rehearse it so it gets back to what we uh, to what we said, or we will have the director reset things. But you don't just change something. Right. So the the constraints that you are referring to exist uh, in both. Yeah. Okay. And in film, do you feel that that the uh, the performances get a little because you have a director? Usually, it's much closer to you. And when you're in the theater, the director might be, you know, might be actually having dinner <laughs> while the show yes, is yes. going on. <laughs> <laughs> but in fact, even out front, as you, even uh, even as you rehearse, right, out front having dinner, that's happened. <laughs> that's happened too. Yeah, I'm sure. So it's a little bit. You have the director right there with you on every single scene. Does, is that you find that more helpful? Well, they they vary. The directors vary. Sometimes right. the director is a little bit, you know, that they're with you a little bit on the set. And sometimes they set everything that they need to set and they disappear even to another room. They're watching the scene from a they're, monitor. Right, in a right. Room. But these are technical uh, things that we have to adjust to as, for instance, so this particular shot is much more intimate. So if the director is allowing the proximity of all kinds of equipment and people near here, then we know we are in a most intimate little moment in the scene. So you realize that it's a much more internal yeah, uh, yeah. Um, focus for the actor. And then, as you say, the production uh, gives freedom for more movement, but it's movement that is set as a rule. Mm -hmm. Now, in film, strangely enough, sometimes there's a little bit more freedom than in the theater because in film, every take is like a rehearsal because we right. haven't been rehearsing. Right. So the takes are like rehearsals. So, right. okay, and sometimes the director will even say, don't worry about the specificity of the line, just use it as a guide. Now, and then, so you start experimenting, and then it can have some freedom that is almost uh, improvisational. Oh, okay. Everyone is in on it. So there is that possibility in film that we don't have in the theater. Right, right. Okay. Do you think, do you think that every actor should do uh, theater as well as film? I do. Okay. Because you learn to carry the character in your heart and in your mind for the entire time you are in the theater. Mm. So you learn to focus that, that kind of through line that takes you from the beginning to the end, the prior life of the character. Right. You are focusing very specifically, as I was trained, to start my work of sensory exploration for things that have to do with my prior life. Mm -hmm. Why am I murdering the children when they come to take a class from me yeah. for something that happened to me, which Mauricio decides is this horrendous tragedy in my childhood. That's the horrifying thing that I'm dealing with. I don't want that to happen anymore, but it can't be helped. I can't. So 
um, don't forget that sometimes I get excited and I forget what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> that happens to us all the time. Don't worry. <laughs> I would worry if that, if that was only happening now that I'm in my 70s, but this is happening since high school. And it doesn't really matter to me. Whatever. We don't even know where we are. What the hell does it matter what we're talking about? <laughs> That's true. Very true. Um, one, one question I had for you uh, when you're putting the teacher's hat back on is um do you i mean obviously teaching so many people in, in your lifetime are do you see some people that come in that just have a quality right and you see it right away and if they do uh, and if let's say someone doesn't have that is can that be taught or learned oh yeah kelly o'hara comes into class i have no idea she does a scene from the glass menagerie. Now, we're talking about a brain that has selective memory at best. That's what Anna Strasberg calls it, selective memory. I have no idea what the hell is going on at the time. I still remember her work on the scene. And I was saying to her after the scene was finished, I said, when you walked away from him with your hobble, with your little malady of your foot, all the way to the, across the room to pick up the little toy you want to share with him. It looked like the longest walk in the world because she's disabled a little bit. She has a limp. Mm -hmm. And this is a boy she's had. A, a fall. She's been in love with this boy her whole life since high school. And he's come to call on her. So she's going to show him uh, uh, her glass menagerie. Now, this young woman, when I see her on the stage, the thing I was saying to her one evening was, Kelly, you are guided by a beautiful genius that is in you that you simply just fall into character. You develop the character fully because she is completely different in every performance that I see. Whether it's King and I over there, or whatever it is, she's completely different and so truthful. So yeah. that was someone who had it from day one. Now, yeah. she had been focused her primary attention on the singing but that singing gave her a sensitivity, a sensibility that absolutely carries her through the acting, which she is very serious about. Mm -hmm. Now, what Lee used to say about the actor who did not show promise was that they, with time, can become sterling. Okay. And he also mentioned, it is very sad to see when a real talent doesn't work hard enough right. because mm -hmm. often, not often, but sometimes someone with less talent accomplishes much more because they're willing to work hard. True. Willing to work hard is the key. Marlon Brando and Al Pacino are two people we've always admired. You know what those people do? They work their ass off all day and night. Al Pacino will read the play at home, then he'll read the play at the actor's studio, then he'll have rehearsals at some studio, then they'll do an off, 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 off Broadway reading of the play, then they'll do an, then the play is on Broadway, then the next, this is yeah. while he's doing another film, and all this, so this, the, Marlon Brando I never met, but my teachers knew Marlon enough to know that everyone in New York knew that was the hardest working actor in the city. Right, and wow. those are the those are the the advice that one is smart to take seriously because the, you say no, you work your 
Heinios. Yeah. 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 Now, I'm uh, experienced and I have blah, blah, and talent and all that, but I go to acting class. Why? I don't want to wonder if I'm doing good work. I want to go over there and see how far I'm going to fall on my face and whether the rehearsals are going well and whether I'm being able to um, accomplish some of the things we've been talking about tonight. For instance, can I wake up in the morning in the scene and not want to talk to the guy? Hmm. And hate the guy. I want nothing, hmm. nothing to do with the guy and not, not act but be ready to kill the guy. I don't want him in my, in my house, this fucking guy. I got to go to work on this. I, wa I, I want to go to bed at night knowing I want, when I speak to the shrink on Wednesday, I want to say the work is coming along nicely. I feel good about my work. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So the intensity that you were talking about, like the, um, Al, Al Pacino and, and, um, when you run into somebody that that comes in, a lot of people come to New York City and they have stars in their eyes and they're going to take one class and they're going to shoot up to the sky, you know. And they and can, and sometimes and they, they can. can. You're right. There's some, some, you know, this business is really strange, right? You can, there's, there's luck involved as well, but that luck can only last you so long if you don't have that training in place. And I think you see it happening with younger actors that suddenly, boom, they hit. And then at some point, people are realizing, well, hmm, they hit, but it they, doesn't last. It doesn't, it doesn't last. Up. Right. Do you, what, what's your advice to actors out there that are considering, you know, taking on this challenge and coming either to New York or LA or wherever to study this crap? What, or, what would you say? One of, the wonder, one of the wonderful theaters around the United States. Remember, we have a magnificent group of theaters, the Lord Theaters, like the Godfrey yeah. and the Alliance. These are magnificent theatrical institutions, for instance, who have beautiful teachers in them. And mm -hmm. not only are the teachers uh, teaching the craft in the theater there, in the classes, but then the students can work their way up and be, you know, small roles here and there. And of course, there you are in a theatrical institution already to even uh, uh, be cast if you're um, uh, lucky and you're uh, working hard enough, etc. Or you come to New York and you do what many of us have done. You find a little job so you can pay your bills right. and you go to acting class. And if your day is not 18 hours long, you're wasting your time. Don't bother. Right. That's what right. I always say. You're right. You're right. Absolutely. So, uh, you got to go to work eight hours a day. Yeah. Then you have to go to class for four hours and you have to rehearse and you have to practice. Don't make me laugh. I tell them, if you're in school and you have a life, you're doing it wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I had one more question. Sorry, George. I'm, no, no, go, 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 go for it. What's being done to actually safeguard the teachings of Lee Strasberg? Is there... I know there's been some documentation and there's been a ton of books written and people like yourself are continuing that. Um, is there something specifically done other than the school itself and to really safeguard that? Because it, you know, I get nervous with how things are in the industry. It's moved so fast right now that it's, a, you know, it's, they don't, I don't know how much effort and work people want to put in 
because things move so fast and it's like, I don't have seven years to put in to study this. I need, I'm giving myself six months, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's the, that's insane, you know? Insane. Very, yeah. And also I wanted to get your thoughts on in the forties and fifties, uh, maybe probably more in the forties when the studios were out, remember somebody would get signed in, in one of the studios and they had acting classes, dancing classes, speech, Di dialect they classes. were entertainers yeah. everything was in there within that, that it was almost like a school for film for for filmmakers or and actors um and they were being paid to and train. they were being paid while they were doing it so i mean yeah. what a what a world um what are your thoughts on that do you is that something with the safeguarding of the of the work and then moving forward into this new digital crazy world that we're living in well The great teachers of the 20th century, Stella Adler, uh, Lee Strasberg, Sandy Meisner, these were the people that uh, Uta Hagen, they transformed the landscape of the American theater because they went to Russia and learned from Stanislavski and his disciples that what we were talking about earlier, that you are, uh, enchanting yourself with your choices as an artist mm -hmm. you are trying to create reality behaving truthfully in the imaginary circumstances being truthful so all of that was being uh, worked on very diligently by these magnificent teachers but now the the students of their students are the ones who are uh, working but technical work from the 20th century isn't going to go into the 21st century. Hmm. I don't think so because I see it in in the in the, the technical work that I learned is not being passed on as effectively as all that. Hmm. And we ask ourselves all the time, uh, we don't think there is room for one more generation of uh, actors that will, in other words, I, we don't think it's going to last another generation. Hmm. Uh -huh. uh, and it's because a couple of the things you, you mentioned, which are true. Who wants to dedicate that kind of time? Right. Who? Someone who is in love with the, with the craft of acting. Someone right. who really, really, no kidding, wants to do their very, very best. Now, the problem is the teachers today are no Strasbergs, no Stella Adler, right. none of that. You know, when, when you met those guys, you went, well, hello. Today right. you are excited because you're meeting the, someone who knew them. Right. So it's realistically speaking. Now I'll tell you that I see something weird going on in films, and it's what I call whisper acting. Everybody mm. is talking like it's like like we are in the bathroom, and we yes. don't want anyone to hear what the hell is going on in the. <laughs> like scenario. everything is shot in the library. Yeah. What the hell is going on in the library? And yeah. I'm gonna kill you, fucking family. And I'm and we are in the park. Yo, uh, who the hell has a fight with them? So I don't know what they, they, that's not a technique. I just I was joking around online when they say, "Where do I get a, a? How do I learn to do whisper acting?" Right. I saw that. <laughs> how do I? How do I not in the scene behave like I would behave if I was this person in my office? Why do I have to start whispering? When would I ever fucking whisper in my office if I'm dealing right. with a bunch of thugs? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And well, that might I'm be part of that. That the technical work of the of the twentieth century is 
a genius will come that I think will continue to make a difference. Now, there's a man by the name of David Gideon here in New York, mm-hmm. a magnificent teacher who had a very beautiful relationship with Lee Strasberg. He was practically Lee's right-hand man, artistically, I'm talking. And uh, he told me he's training a couple of wonderful actresses that will be able to carry the work on. But he is someone that I know that is doing that. People that are coming out of the actor's studio and are teaching this stuff, I don't see the Lee Strasberg technique. It's uh, something completely um, new that's not Lee Strasberg. But David Gideon and the people he is training, there's hope in my mind with him. Yeah. I mean, there are going to be people that are interested in carrying that because, and it's always, they may not be prominent, uh, every, everyone, but like, for instance, George and I are musicians and we listen to the blues and we listen to jazz and that's the best music really ever made. We love rock and roll as well, but that was really what we, you know, what we dive into it. So there are musicians now that are taking that and, and jazz is huge around the world. You know, um, it's still because I think the purity of something is eventually going to be seen. Yeah. Especially with like what we went through with some of the you know, TV shows like in the 80s and the 90s. It seemed like they were really struggling to try to come up with something. Not all of them. There are a lot of great shows as well. But uh-huh. um, it just seemed flat in what you were talking about, even whispering of things you know um very whereas, whereas low key. I, have, I have recently gotten hooked into a downton abbey for instance i'd never watched it until the last okay yeah months. my wife watched the whole thing she now, every <laughs> single actor in that thing from the servants to the extras to the top of the line they've been working on shakespeare since they're since they're eight years old i right. know right it's in the and, schools though that's another thing course. So every single one of those people has been in the theater their whole life. Right. And look at what brilliant work they're doing on camera. Incredible work. Incredible. When you look at some of the the British, uh, just even the comedies, they're so specifically, they're so technical. And you think it's humor, which should be somewhat free, but it's very well thought out. Very, very well thought out. Now, I have heard things about the English actor that fascinate me that have to do with, with language, with Shakespeare, that the syllables... And the words affect the actor internally yes. in a way that we don't understand as clearly here in, in America. They work at, they let their external choices affect them. When right. Richard III is crippled, the actor is letting the, the physical choices affect him. But the words, the vocabulary, the dialogue is affecting to the actors. Yeah. And so yeah. they are incredibly sensitive in performance and they have arrived at it from the outside to the inside as a rule right many english actors understand the internal work of the american actor and vice versa the american actor too can be quite fortunate if they've been working in the theater with with all the classics and everything and also in film of course they're getting a very similar background that an english actor would have gotten Right. And I'd, I'd worked with uh, Ruth Cullerman in New York and she did the the um, British technique. So that was my exactly what you were talking about. It was really pulling out the emotion out of the actual words themselves and in the, in the text, which was really, really different and really yeah. hard to do. Um, but it was the most rewarding. I thought when you read something now, even today, when I'm reading anything, I can pull from these texts or whatever book I'm reading 
the character even better. Not that I'm playing the character, but I'm understanding the character a little bit better. So there's methods out there that I think really complement each other. Yeah. When you when you really study all uh, you know all of them. Absolutely. No, they do. They complement each other beautifully. Yeah. The, the, the combination of the two specifics that we're talking about right now, the approach from the English actor and the approach from the American actor, they complement each other beautifully. Yeah. So you, you mentioned, uh, George, I'm sorry. Do you no, go, go for it. No, no, go ahead. Go so ahead. I wanted to, to ask about the um, young actors that come to New York. I worked in the health club industry for a while and I would hire, I learned <laughs> that when I was hiring for my front desk or whatever, I would, um, if you hire actors, it's wonderful because they're constantly, I used to tell them, well, this is like the pretend is a theater and the members will come in and they got to sign in and, you know, do a performance, you know, and <laughs> membership. And, and I made it. Personality blossom it was bit. fantastic. Yeah. And everyone I hired was great. But the one thing that I saw almost all of them do was get distracted with New York city. Yes. They yes. would go out. Everyone has a birthday every weekend. There was somebody's birthday that was celebrating. I was just like, and I'm thinking, what are you doing? And of course, you know, now it's been over 10 years, maybe 15 years at this point. And, you know, they have wonderful lives, you know, but they didn't pursue what they were originally that I saw that in their eyes that they wanted to pursue. Um, the distractions in New York, how, how is someone going to, how were you able to actually put those things aside enough where you can dive in and do, I mean, I know Al Pacino used to sleep on the stage in the theater because he didn't have a place to sleep. So he would just sleep on the stage. Everybody would show up. He would clean. I mean, this was a man who was obviously obsessed. Um, that's in, the, in that's the difference. Obsessed. Obsessed. And uh, Marlon Brando as well. Um, what, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? Like for somebody younger coming in here to keep away from, how do they do that? Because I've, I've seen it all so many times. It just makes, it makes me sad. I say it all the time. New York City is a classroom. Mm. Now mm -hmm. you come here to learn. Right. You go to the museums, you go to the ballet, you go to the opera, you go to restaurant week. The most, the, the finest chefs Amazing. in the world are. I, I love restaurants. That you can afford for once if you, uh, so uh, architecture, what sports, music, you talk about it, New York City has to offer it. So the tricky part is not falling into the craziness that you were describing, which oh, who isn't going to fall into that craziness? I was lucky because I came here already in a play. You know, right. I'm, I'm one of these crazies. Everything falls on my lap on a silver platter. <laughs> <laughs> but I already, I already had something I didn't want to lose. By the time I moved, by the time I moved to New York, I'd already been touring the United States, starring in the play. I know wow. what that felt like. I know what I did not want to lose. Why I couldn't afford to be a friggin' drunk, which I stopped drinking 20 years ago. Mm. Why I couldn't afford to drugs. Forget about drugs. Yeah. We thought yeah. nobody ever heard of it. And I worked with very a disciplinarian bill McHale was a paternal loving wonderful man and a gorgeous disciplinarian no one was ever absent no one was ever late none of this nonsense in any of the thousands of performances are no nonsense so i came here very lucky protecting yeah. a treasure yeah yeah and already and i already met with other artists who were similarly engaged 
most of my friends by that time were also already playing on Broadway and everything. So I was very, very lucky in that respect, because if I had come to New York empty handed, so to speak, to start. Wow, we're talking about a friggin impossibility here. We're talking about you got to be crazy to pursue it. Right. We were laughing about that earlier. Right. Like Ruth Gordon used to say, you got to refuse to look at the facts. Right. <laughs> That's how you succeed. Right. right. So I guess it's important for them to go and find like an actual acting coach early, a good class to get into yeah. right off the bat as priority. And start and doing dive in. Work. Exactly. Dive in and don't look back. Yeah. I'm sorry, George. Yeah. With, I was going to say, with and with that experience that you have through all those years, because I know you work with kids and, and, yeah. and so you, I'm, I'm pretty sure you have those conversations with kids and, and stuff. That, how is it working with kids? Because I, I, I could only assume attention span is an issue there too. You know I mean? yeah. <laughs> Genius. Really? Yeah. Now, the child who is brought to a school like a Lee Strasberg Theater Institute or, or an acting school I, in New York. Talk about, you walk down the street and so there's a little science school for children five, six, seven years old or dance or theater. Um, now I've gotten so excited, I forget what we're talking about. But, um, <laughs> about oh, working with working with oh, children. children. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. First of all, they want to know why I have so much meat down here. <laughs> I said, if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to go. Right? <laughs> now, there's they, they explained something to me. I wrote scenes for them to rehearse. Just so they would learn how to rehearse with each other. Excuse me. Uh, the scenes that you write are lame. Wow. Wow. Um, wow. They're lame. I go, well, you know what we need to do? Maybe you guys are going to have to write something that you like. Uh, this, uh, as a result of which they start writing their own play. Wow. The camping nightmare. Everybody dies, including the wolf. <laughs> now, that's what we're talking about. Now, that's theater. Yeah. I don't want to share my bedroom with my sister, whatever. Nonsense. No, the friggin' wolf is dead and dead. And, <laughs> and then, we, and then the, the next thing, we're flying to the moon and we're doing all sorts of things. And we're bugs and we're all sorts of crazy things. That's what we're talking about. They come in one day. They say, we need all the lights out today. What? No. Oh, we've got to have all the lights. How are you? They nearly stopped them. They got what they wanted. They turned all the lights out in the theater. And they all had lighting instruments. Little. They had done a whole. They had planned a whole improvisation in the dark with their little lighting equipment. And magnificent surprise for the teacher. And here I'm. I had to remember a, a rule that I learned from Harvard University. Children hear the word no 80-something times before they hear the word yes, right. and they learn through yes, not through no. So right. I'm saying, shut your stupid trap, you fool. You're, they, they're smarter than you are. <laughs> right. and, and they say, can we please do Shakespeare at the end because that's the easiest. <laughs> the easiest. <laughs> wow. Oh, and then why do you want to marry a boy? Uh, my mommy, I have two mommies. My uncle has a husband. Oh, brother, eight years old. They start a whole town. They have the whole thing a, going. A, a town hall meeting about sexuality and uh, the new. Oh way my god! So they simply um, have something that they haven't lost. 
Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. I was just gonna say that it hasn't been uh, beaten out of them from from life and experiences and uh-huh. individuals that. Uh, and when I see them in the class, the one who wrote "Easy" was her name. Easy. She's the one who wrote "The Camping Nightmare." A couple of months later, she was on the Broadway stage in the musical um, about the dancing boy. I'll remember the name of the musical in a moment. I remember how Evan Hansen. No, I, a little earlier. Oh. Billy Elliot. Billy, oh, Billy Elliot. Elliot. Yes. Okay. And I remember that um, the the institute was having a lot of difficulty at the moment, and they didn't want to hear anything about vulgarity in the classroom, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I said, no, there's no vulgarity in the classroom with the children, for sure. But once in a while, they ask me permission. Can they say a cuss word? I go, once you can. One, you can <laughs> curse once, no more. Uh, <laughs> But the little girl goes on the Broadway stage at age eight or nine. The first word out of her mouth on the Broadway stage is, you look like a dickhead to me. <laughs> <laughs> the other little boy is seeing dead people, right? And the, so the children are having to deal with crazy stuff in the theater and in the films. Right. So you're giving them a lot of leeway because they themselves come up with crazy stuff. They're improv. Right. They want to improvise on being on lockdown. Wow. That is horrible to me. That's terrible. I would yeah. never dream of putting him through that. Right. They ask for it. They want to do it. In the 2016, every improv have a Hillary and a Trump in it. <laughs> They're genius. It's the ultimate right. in creativity, those kids. That's it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. So I, I wanted to quickly, uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to geek out a little bit on some... Um, some actors, um, like we were talking about Marlon Brando a little bit. Um, there was a, a, a shift when Marlon came on the scene on how on on acting really. Um, there was there was this fast paced. Uh, hey Maria, where are you gonna go there? Man? Oh yeah, so tell you what There was this kind of tempo that went on in the forties and even onto the fifties. And then Marlon it was Brando, it was presentational. It was a presentation. Yes. It was like, "Hey, Maria, where are you going today?" I'm going to. And it was. Just, and it probably came from the vaudeville yes, stage yes, and yes, all that yes, stuff, yes. right? Absolutely. And but then Marlon came along and changed everything. And not not only him, but the people that were around him, he seemed to also change them as well. Like I yeah. think I just saw recently uh, on the waterfront again for something and. You know, there's there's scenes in there that you you can't find any scenes like that earlier or almost since either. But what's your impression on on somebody like that? You see why he was a great somebody or other. That's mm. the thing. Now Stella Adler had a wonderful influence on Marlon Brando, right? And she was able to help him understand this that you're describing, this truthful. Right. behavior uh, and uh, she approached it differently from lee but she was going after the same thing which is truthful behavior under the imaginary circumstances she focused a great deal of attention i believe because i did never study her work but i believe she uh, with her and with everybody everything starts with interpretation but right. she did focus a great deal on the little things that characters do that make them unique the stuff they carry around, the, the props they use, the way they dress, the, the, the activities they engage in that help the actor understand this what's coming from inside. 
Right. But she was, uh, it was really Stella Adler that was able to get through to Marlon. And, and then, of course, at this point also, Lee is in the scene. And Lee and Stella are working with the, all the best-known actors in the film and theater at the time. And they're all working on the same, same uh, issues of relaxation, of truthful behavior. There's a very funny joke of one of the great actors of the 20th century. He says he, he, he has a nightmare sometimes that he is dead and in the coffin. And Lee comes over and, and does like this and says, uh, two tens. <laughs> we used to check our relaxation. Check You're not dead enough. <laughs> two tens. So it was the passion about yeah. the technique. Right. Wow. But we wow. had, like I described earlier, when you sat with Stella or Uda or Lee, forget about it. Yeah. They just had an insight into human condition and the approach. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Exactly that. So I feel like we could go on and on. <laughs> Me too. I could talk like this until the cows come home and they're in West Virginia. <laughs> I love this uh, conversation. And Me too. Um, thank you. George and I would love to have you back again. You yes, know, sir. Oh, it, and, would be a, it would be a pleasure and an honor. Yeah, absolutely. We would love it. So thank you so much for being on. Just um, hang on one second. We're going to be with you in a second. Thank I'm you both. End the show. Thank I'll be right you back. very, very much. Thank, Thank you me. so much. Appreciate yes, it. Sir. All right. Wow. Alicio Bustamante. fantastic. That huh? awesome. Absolutely. Um, this is that, yeah. I mean, like I said, I could, I'm looking at the time. I couldn't believe it was an hour. And I'm I know. It, it flew by. It an just hour. By. Wait a minute. <laughs> we just started. So we're definitely going to have him back again, and we'll we'll dive into so many other issues and stuff. But thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Appreciate you. Thank you, George, for putting up with all my questions and <laughs> cutting you off. I enjoyed it. I, was, I enjoyed it. I was just too excited. No, it was great. But, uh, but thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you all again next week, 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Counterparts. Uh, George Batista, John Henry Soto. Have a wonderful week ahead. Take care of yourselves. And as always... <laughs>